Welcome to the first episode of this season of Pull Quotes, a weekly podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Aberha. Thank you for joining us today. In a year where the news cycle feels like it's moving faster than it ever has before, we're going to take a second to slow things down. We'll be here every week to unpack the stories that people are talking about and the stories we should be talking about. Here on Pull Quotes, we'll bring you interviews and analysis that cut through the noise and get at the heart of what's going on in journalism today. Last season, Pull Quotes looked at how cannabis coverage was growing as legalization loomed. This week on the show, what does legalization mean for the ever-growing weed beat? Recreational cannabis has been legal for less than a week, and already it seems like there's a fatigue around pot. But reporters are just starting to scratch the surface when it comes to the cannabis issue. We'll be sitting down with Mark Rendell of The Globe and Mail and freelancer Kieran Delamont, two reporters who spend a lot of time thinking about this question. Nick Pateras, vice president of strategy at Lyft & Co., also joins us to talk about the ways he sees the relationship between the cannabis industry and those who report on it. We promise to keep the weed puns to a minimum. I reached Kieran Delamont on the phone. Kieran is a freelance journalist who has written for publications like Now Magazine and The Ottawa Citizen and Vice. And Kieran does a lot of writing about cannabis and the cannabis industry. So, Kieran, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, no troubles. So, you've been covering cannabis on and off since about 2015. As legalization has approached and now been implemented, uh, how have you seen the coverage change? It just starts to be a little bit more legitimate and more business-focused and less of a, a gray black market uh, counterculture type thing. You've obviously seen like the, the big newspapers get in on this. Uh, you know, I think every newspaper probably has a cannabis reporter now, or at least somebody who covers the cannabis beat. And it's just a lot of people, I think, jumping in on the game. It's, it's, there's just a ton of people interested in what's happening in this big shift, in this uh, sort of monumental drug policy question that we're dealing with. And... That can be good and bad, uh, but but I think you've just seen you know, the biggest shift is if you've just seen more of it. So, as you're saying, there's now like every newspaper has a cannabis reporter is covering this in some way or another. How do you see that shift from you know something that was once quite niche and counterculture, and um, what does that look like now that it it is taken on a kind of mainstream spin? Um, I think the first people for newspapers really to throw on it were the the business reporters, um, which I think you know has a bunch of knock on effects and and you know shapes the coverage and shapes the industry uh, in a certain way. Uh, but I think you know uh, on the flip side of that too, you, you've seen uh, people starting to to pose a lot more questions around um, uh, around justice and social justice. Uh, the Toronto Star and Vice have, have both done really good work on on the policing of cannabis possession charges, mm-hmm. and you've seen tons of op eds calling for cannabis amnesty. You know, people really fixating on the inequalities that have always been present in cannabis, but are now sort of front and center as we legalize it. Um, and then, you know, to the same extent, you're starting to see, I think, a little bit more culture reporting too. You're starting to see people look at it and say, how how can we do this in an interesting way? How can we do this in a way that's meaningful both to the people who cover it and to the readers who aren't all necessarily cannabis consumers. So what do you think cannabis culture reporting will start to look like now that it's been legalized? The thing I've always kind of said and I've always 
kept in, in my mind is that it should look something like the best food writing we have, um, insofar as the, the focus of the pieces should not be the cannabis itself, and it should not be the consumption of cannabis itself. Um, the focus should be on the people who use it, right? Like the people who are using it to forge social connections, are using it to, to, to sort of find a way to, to be comfortable with themselves in certain settings. Um, I was thinking about this in February and, and I was sort of obsessing over this question and, and, and the way I sort of tried to think about it and try to find an answer for what this should look like was, was to sit there and just for hours and hours on end, I would just read food essays. Um, I would read food essays and wine essays and beer essays, and I landed on this one, and it was it was this really clever story um, by Danny Chow at The Ringer, uh, and it was called The Burning Desire for Hot Chicken, and it was about his trip down to Nashville to try to eat uh, Nashville hot chicken, which is this iconic uh, Nashville dish, but it was a story, right, it was about race, and it was about, uh, you know, Nashville as a city, and it was about the experience of food and and pushing each other to, you know pushing yourself to extremes when you're eating it and you know shared experiences and tradition and all of these things were swirling around and I, I I just kind of sort of thought to myself you know why doesn't this really exist in cannabis like why can't this exist in cannabis right like is there anything structurally stopping this industry and then this sort of journalism industry from from writing in a way that's that's like that. Um, and so when I think about cultural reporting, I think it's like that should be what people strive for. And it's really hard to do, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's obviously a little bit harder, especially, uh, you know, under prohibition to, to write in that way and get access in that way and to tell stories in that way. I think that the big opportunity for, for some reporters, uh, you know, hopefully myself included, it's, it's kind of what I'm excited about is that with all of this kind of normalization that comes along will come this sort of openness that is going to this openness and this this flexibility and this kind of space within the idea of cannabis to start writing interesting stories and start writing stories that are um, really human. So I think cultural reporting is, is probably going to go that way. You know, I don't think we're at a point where a lot of feature writers would be able to go into sort of a, a smoke session and and really kind of grapple with that on on its own terms right mm-hmm. like they would be you know it's where you get those kind of cartoonish depictions of things and you know the hazy room and yeah. the the smell and and you know all of that and it, it's interesting that you talk about this depiction of the hazy room because even that will change as the way that people consume cannabis will change as like to vapes and edibles and as that all becomes legal right absolutely right like i like a lot of our motifs that we you know tend to rely on when we think about cannabis are going to to sort of fall away and um you know even uh, even today being the 17th you've seen a lot of people focusing on these you know the, the classic story that i've seen today is this oh like let's take a picture of this first person who bought weed at a store like we've coded you know uh, cannabis users for years and for decades as blue collar and working class and kind of outcasts from respectable society it's no wonder that you're seeing that these are the people that are going to flock to it and and you know i think that that's going to change because yes we're going to see we're going to see the types of consumption change we're going to see it become normalized right and then that's going to be less shocking there's not going to be any more stories eventually about the gummy the weed gummy soccer mom right. or the you know the the vape pen business guy like that'll just be normal 
And that's really cool, actually, I think. To pivot a little bit, you wrote a feature for Now last year, uh, Decolonizing Cannabis, Can Legalization Set Indigenous Communities Free? Um, And in this piece, you point out that legislation largely leaves out how legalization will apply to Indigenous communities. So what do you think that cannabis reporters need to keep in mind uh, when writing about weed in an Indigenous context? Uh, yeah, that was a, that was a hard one. That was, um, that was one where I, you know, I, I, I sort of had to really think about what I was doing and it, and it felt very tough to, to write about it while not being an indigenous person too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that, I guess is, is maybe what I'm sort of coming to is that I'm not sure if I have sort of a, a, a checklist of things people should think about. I think people should realize that it's a very difficult question and, it's going to need to be question, you know. It's going to be need to be one that people ask themselves when they're doing this. It's going to need to be something that that people think very hard about. Um, but I don't think that that means they should shy away from doing it. I think it's just you just you need to think about the sort of enormity of the history that you're inheriting with a story like that. Mm-hmm. And then there was the whole. I mean brought this one up which is very interesting but there was the whole brouhaha over the picture that went with that one and that was something and I didn't you know I didn't know what the art was before the piece was going to come out I sort of logged on after the story came out and it's like oh my god everyone is upset about this photo there's people demanding apologies I didn't even know who had done the art so I found that out and I you know I reached out to the guy who did the art and and he was indigenous and it was it was a very weird news cycle to watch you know myself be a part of right uh and so to to ask me to be the guy who has any advice for it um you know i i almost sort of want to abdicate any any responsibility there because i don't know i i think you just try to do it in a way that's respectful um and you listen to people and you you know you 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 do it in a way that kind of honors other people's terms ideally i think you just get indigenous reporters to do it it's really my short answer too All right, Kieran, thank you so much for your time today, uh, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Yeah, no troubles. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye. So with me right now, I have Nick Pateras. Nick is the Vice President of Strategy for Lift & Co. Lift & Co. is a company that was started in 2013 by Tyler Sukachoff. Their website describes it as uh, having started as being designed to be an online meeting place to share experiences, read industry news, and discover strains. They were also Canada's first website for product reviews that helped people find the right products for their needs. Since then, Lift & Co. has grown with the introduction of the Lift & Co. Expos, Cannabis Business Conferences, uh, Canadian Cannabis Awards, and they've revised their rewards program for cannabis reviewers that now complies with the Cannabis Act, uh, and they also have a retail certification program. Nick has been with Lift & Co. since March of 2017. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What impact do you think that media coverage has had on legalization? Huge. Um, as someone who tries to read and watch and listen to absolutely everything, um, I'm exhausted because I feel every single media outlet has either a dedicated team now or at least are devoting several column inches or um, minutes to cannabis. So the media's had a big role in uh, you know helping the Canadian population, I think, understand what a gargantuan moment this is for us. So um, a lot of credit to be given to the media for helping us uh, move the conversation along at the same time as I think is want 
to happen with any complex issue, um, some uh, details uh, sometimes get missed. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on some of those details? Yeah. So, for example, I mean, I think there's a narrative around the black market solely being full of, uh, you know, profiteering criminals. I mean, I guess to the letter of the law, these people would be uh criminals are eligible for criminal records. But, you know, for instance, as someone who has a number of friends in the unregulated market, a lot of those people who run dispensaries or, or uh, medical clinics um, come from a place of compassion and are literally just looking to ensure that patients have access to treat their medical condition. So uh, can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced working for a cannabis company uh, kind of before cannabis was actually legal? Yeah, so I mean, there's a there's a few pieces there. One is that we've actually had legal cannabis in this country since 2001, because that's when uh, you were first able to go get a medical authorization from a physician or or a nurse care practitioner in some provinces. So we've actually had some form of legal access for 18 years. Um, having said that, it was not widely known. I think even to, up until very recently, the the idea of medical cannabis has not been widely known. Um, so the first thing is helping people understand that it can be safe and actually beyond safe, it actually can be beneficial for a number of people. Um, the second element to just you know how it's been to live in this space and navigate it over the last two years is, of course, uh, you know the S word. Stigma remains uh, a real thing. We are exiting. 95 years of prohibition in this country, and the last 40 of which has um, conditioned much of the population to think of the plant and consumption as necessarily leading to rape, suicide, uh, violence, and murder. Not everyone subscribes to that extreme, but some do. And so what we're really doing is trying to undo decades of social conditioning. So often I, I have had conversations where people will just shut down or they will you know uh, sneer or snicker and say, you know, oh, I don't do drugs. But I enjoy it because it, it opens the door for a, a broader conversation about why we think what we do about things like cannabis. How do you think the reputation of cannabis culture magazines will change as more mainstream companies uh, are jumping on this beat? So I, th I think what you'll see is a, a better segmentation of the market. Um, right now, the consumer base that purchased through illicit channels or unregulated channels, there's a segmentation there, but they're a, a certain, of a certain spectrum, and there's a certain similarity amongst them. As the market goes more mainstream and as cannabis consumption becomes more normalized, um, what we'll see is a clear distinction between different consumer groups. So to your point, some of the magazines uh, will choose to retain the target target audience of, you know, the, let's call it the classical cannabis consumer. Um, in media, we might call that the, the pothead or stoner archetype. But then you also see some magazines evolve to trying to cater to the lifestyle consumer, or perhaps there are, there are brands out there that speak only to women or only to seniors. And what they're doing is trying to welcome them into a new category and help them understand what it means to consume uh, responsibly and to you know uh, play a small role in the, this larger um, industry. So Lifton Co. started as a place for weed reviews, essentially, as you were saying. It's been legally accessible for the medical community since 2001, so people have been able to, to purchase marijuana legally. Do you know why we shouldn't say the word marijuana, by the way? Let's talk about that. Uh, can you talk a bit about uh, how the language around cannabis has evolved? Yeah, so because you've uh, had um, a substance, or I should say a plant, that's been prohibited for 95 years, and during that window so many have chosen to consume it, and so it's been underground, 
most things underground tend to adopt a number of different colloquial terms. So you have weed, which in some ways is actually fairly representative because cannabis is a weed. It does grow like one. At the same time, you have other uh, terms as well. So marijuana is a Another term, marijuana is a term that was adopted and propagated largely by the Canadian and U.S. governments in the early to mid part of the 20th centuries. Um, and a lot of the reason for that was essentially to associate it with, uh, at the time, the U.S. government was trying to associate it with Mexicans and Mexican immigrants who had fled the Mexican Revolution and come into the U.S. Prior to that, very few Americans actually consumed uh, cannabis. So the, the term marijuana had actually been around before then, but the U.S. government did a, a lot to propagate it and push its adoption. Why? Well, marijuana is a very Spanish-sounding word and much makes it much easier to justify deportations when you're trying to talk about Mexican citizens as a second-class human, uh, not worthy of being in your country. Of, uh, of Americans because they may cause, and their habits may cause the downfall of the American race, let's say. So that is why marijuana was initially spelt with an H as well, marijuana. Eventually we took the small step towards removing the H and replacing it with a J, which was a good step. But again, the whole word marijuana uh, phonetically has a deep uh, history in uh, racialization. It's not to say it's actually the only reason we use have used the word, um, but it's a large part of it, um, a core part of it. And so for us as an industry, the reason we uh, are pushing for the adoption of the word cannabis is because that is the formal botanical name for the plant. Of course, it also doesn't have, by virtue of what I just discussed, the um, stigma or social baggage of marijuana. And because of the color and the checkered history we've, we've had, we really need to do everything we can as a history, as, a, as an industry, to get rid of that kind of history. Lift & Co's started as a place for weed reviews, but you also run this massive industry conference and you have a magazine. Um, so first of all, do you see the content in the magazine as a form of journalism? Mm, it is, yes. Yeah, so the, the magazine, so it runs online only. Mm -hmm. um, it's a digital magazine. It definitely is a form of journalism. It serves to educate as, as well. It's not just uh, reporting on industry developments, but a lot of our readership actually are uh, consumers who just want to better understand cannabis at a 101 or 201 level. So um, I think that serves a, a big role as well. So now that the product is going to be more widely available and likely more widely used, what does that mean for your readership? How do you think... Um, how do you think it's going to change? Well, our addressable market just opened up. I mean, to the extent that we were only looking at medical patients before, you know, there are about 300 to 350,000 legal medical cannabis patients in this country. StatsCan found that about 5.7, 5.8 million Canadians consumed cannabis at some point in uh, 2017. And so for us, you, we now have a much larger readership or potential readership, I should say. It's you know our job now to do some segmentation or refine it, I should say, because we've already done uh, a number of exercises on that and determine, you know, who wants to read what and who do we want to appeal to. So it's a, it's a new era for us as a business because it's a new era for us as an industry. All right, Nick, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. With me here today is Mark Rendell. Uh, Mark is a reporter at the Globe and Mail. He works for the Cannabis Pro Product, uh, which is part of the Report on Business. And 
Uh, Mark is also my former colleague from the University of King's College from many years ago. Indeed. So, Mark, welcome to Pull Quotes. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, how did you end up on the Cannabis Beat? I ended up on the Cannabis Beat about, gosh, 10 months ago now. I'm still a fairly new cannabis reporter. Um, I was hired at the National Post. I had moved to Toronto uh, about a year ago, had done uh, uh, a program at the Globe, the Globe Summer Program, spent the autumn uh, freelancing, and then was hired at the National Post. Uh, so I was with Post Media till about midsummer, uh, and then the Globe posted a number of jobs about the uh, their new cannabis uh, product they were launching. So that's where I'm currently working, is at the Globe, uh, working for a new, uh, interesting new uh, uh, experiment in not only cannabis, but also in publishing, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute um, and so uh, kind of continuing the uh, the focus on on uh, cannabis from a kind of business angle which is what I was doing when I was at uh, the financial post as well uh, are there ways in which you see the business side of the cannabis beat intersecting with other beats like social justice or labor or the environment absolutely um, one of the big questions that is at the intersection of uh, I guess, kind of social justice questions as well as business is the question of inclusion. Um, there's going to be a lot of money made in the cannabis rush. Uh, the question is who makes that money? Um, and so a lot of the questions that we ask around how do we license retail stores, who gets to be a dispensary, whether you have a criminal record, does that disqualify you or not? Can you work for a cannabis company if you have a criminal record? How does the background check system work? All of these things directly pertain to the question of who is going to make money. And um, I guess at the very least, one of the realities of, of uh, legalization is the people who are making a lot of money off this are wealthy people on Bay Street, typically, uh, though not exclusively, white males. Uh, and when you look at who uh, has suffered the most from, you know, the prohibition that we've had for the last 95 years, it's typically not people, you know, white men in nice suits who have lunches down on, uh, you know, Bay Street. So the question of how do we include people in uh, and essentially allow people to participate in what is going to be a big money making enterprise uh, is a really important question at that at that intersection Um of social justice, of inclusion, and of business. So, yeah, lots of questions there. And and that, you know, the environmental one bears a lot of thinking about in, in British Columbia in particular, where uh, you have agricultural land reserves, which are, you know, because BC has scarce land that is able to be farmed. It has a system called agricultural reserves, and they have uh, agricultural reserve land. And the BC government has said municipalities have the ability to ban you know, cannabis companies building on agricultural reserve land if they're using concrete floors, which of course has got the industry up in arms. Uh, many people spend a lot of money buying properties which are now they cannot build on or they're going to have to think about how to build on in a new kind of way. Um, but it's also balancing a reasonable concern or what could be seen as a reasonable concern um, not to throw up a bunch of big concrete bunkers on agricultural reserve land. So yeah, lots of questions on on the environmental side too. So um, yeah, tons for journalists to dig into. So you are one of the reporters for the Globe's Cannabis Pro product, um, which uh, subscriptions I believe are, they're currently selling them for $1,000 a year, but will be $2,000 a year. So is this 
meant to be purely an insider business facing newsletter? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's focused on the industry. Um, the kind of stuff that we write is for, uh, an audience, um, made up of both direct industry participants. So, you know, the C-suites of, um, different cannabis companies, but also, um, bankers, accountants, lawyers, the kind of professional, um, groups that are, that are servicing the industry. So, um, it's a really interesting business model. It's a bit of an experiment in publishing for the Globe and Mail. Um, the question they're asking is, is there a appetite, um, within a given industry to have, uh, you know, a very hyper-focused industry focused publication, um, the kind of value proposition that we make is that we have, you know, very focused coverage on the industry. We also are getting information to our subscribers before it goes out to a general public. So the thought there is because we're in the business news space, people are getting actionable information before the markets, rest of the markets do. The thought being there is you can make your $1,000 subscription back pretty darn quick if uh, you're getting a bit of information that moves markets before everybody else does. It's interesting from like a media industry perspective and a media business perspective, uh, just looking at the different ways companies are trying to get in on the cannabis rush like uh, like everybody else. And, you know, the, the, the kind of joke, cannabis industry is creating jobs. I mean, it's creating jobs in journalism too. There's a whole bunch of you know, cannabis beat reporters now across the country. I am one of them. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It'll be really interesting to see how long it lasts. Cause I, you know, I have no clue if people are going to be, you know, when cannabis in three years time is as boring as beer or the liquor industry, uh, not to say that those are boring, but when they're, when it's as regular and kind of work a day as that, um, are readers going to be interested? Are readers going to be, um, you know, subscribing to every story, uh, you know, cannabis story that pops up. Are we going to be able to um, have kind of premium product uh, pitched to premium price? I honestly don't know, but it's uh, right now it's it's hot and people want to know about it. Mark Rendell, thank you so much for coming in and sharing all your expertise on the Weed Beat with us. You are more than welcome. Happy to be here. And now for our podcast signature segment, Pull Quotes. Each week, we'll bring a different pull quote to the table, a snippet from a story we think is worth talking about. There's a lot to cover in Canadian journalism, and we're not going to get it all in a 30-minute episode, but we're going to try anyways. Mikal, what is your pull quote? So, Lydia, uh, as you may have heard, I hope you have heard, because I think uh, you'd have to be under a rock to not have heard about the UN uh, climate report from last week. Um, it was the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, they released a report that basically said, we have 12 years to uh, get our carbon emissions in check before, you know, things go belly up. You know, it feels like we haven't felt the effects as intensely as uh, countries in warmer climates. So I've been kind of thinking, you know, what are we talking about? What does it mean for Canada? Like, how how are reporters dealing with it here? So there was a piece in the National Observer on Wednesday, October 17th, uh, by David McLaughlin, 
what the UN panel's special climate change report means for Canada. So here is my pull quote. The changes already experienced are projected to increase with greater degrees of warming. They will profoundly affect Indigenous ways of life and livelihood in our North. Hunting and gathering patterns will shift forever. Ice roads and transportation routes suddenly are less reliable. Food and necessities for isolated communities become far more expensive and difficult to secure. So uh, I think I, this piece kind of talks about a lot of different things, a lot of the ways that Canada is going to see changes, uh, but perhaps the most intensely felt will be in the north. And uh, so I wanted to bring that to the table. That's, that's very, very important. I'm glad you brought it up. All right, Lydia, what is your pull quote? My pull quote is actually a tweet from Canada Land uh, announcing that CBC has confirmed that on election night in Ontario, they will be broadcasting an episode of the Murdoch Mysteries and not the local election coverage. Um, they cite in their email to Canada Land competing priorities and their commitment to their advertisers as a reason why. I, I find that very surprising um, that a TV show can trump the like municipal elections where stakes are running so high if you've been following what's been going on in the city um, and uh, in the province in general. And I think that uh, as, since CBC is like a leading like media organization, they should be doing their best to kind of put those values forward above all else. Um, commitment to advertisers are important, but you know, there's a commitment to the public. And I just, I think that, that that's why that stood out to me. Well, uh, I think we'll have to talk about this a little bit more next week. Yep, after we've been to the polls. That's it for this week, folks. Thank you for listening. If you learned anything today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating in iTunes. Thanks to Mark Rendell, Kieran Delamont, and Nick Pateras for joining us today. And thanks to Sonia Fata, Angela Glover, and Lindsay Hanna for help with this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find me on Twitter at Michal Stein 2 And me at Liddy Abraha. You can also visit rrj.ca for news stories every week. We'll see you next week on Poll Quotes. Poll Quotes.